Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our Bible study series on the book of Romans. If you have a Bible handy, please turn it to Romans chapter 10. And while you're turning there, last week we only covered four verses. But they're incredibly important verses because St. Paul was explaining how all of this works. How does salvation by faith tie into the new dynamic of the new covenant between Gentiles and Jews. And he's talking about how Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Because various Jewish groups and sects were trying to establish their own righteousness by the law, well, then all that zeal that St. Paul credits with them doesn't profit them. It doesn't help them because it is apart from faith in Jesus. We can't forget that Christians do not do good works in order to be Christians. Christians do good works because they are Christians, because we have the new obedience, because faith in Christ spurs us on in gratitude and love for our Lord to follow his word, to follow the Ten Commandments. And morality and following the law isn't going to get you anywhere. It is a necessary part of our lives, but it is not what saves us. So that being said, let's go ahead and start digging into Romans chapter 10, starting at verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now that is some extremely encouraging text here. But we do have to unpack it and go by and look verse by verse through it again to make sure we are still careful with the text. For instance, we see in verse 5 that St. Paul writes, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. That's Leviticus 18, verse 5. St. Paul is not saying here that you can attain that righteousness. Throughout the first three chapters of Romans, he has bound everybody under sin. And the dynamic of the law do good to get good, and if you do bad, oh boy, are you going to receive a lot more bad. The same law that says, do these things and you shall live by them, it also says the punishment for violating the law is death. And newsflash, in case you weren't aware, every human being that isn't Jesus Christ has sinned and is therefore 
under the sentence of death, according to the law. So it's a hypothetical, this righteousness that is based on the law. It's not actually attained by anybody. And if you look at church history, there have been a few attempts at saying, well, this person or that person did. Maybe somebody could try to say that Enoch had it. After all, Enoch didn't die. Maybe Elijah had it because Elijah didn't die. Apparently, it looks like they were not under the sentence of death, except that Enoch and Elijah walked with God. They trusted in God. The sentence of death being repealed upon them, their declaration of innocence, was not because they observed the law. Enoch didn't have the law of Moses to obey. And Elijah, by life circumstances, could not obey the law. When you consider how he ran from Jezebel and had to go live in the desert for a very long time, this means that Elijah was missing the commanded feasts like the Passover. Elijah did not have the opportunity to obey the law. Therefore, he could not have been spared death by obedience to the law. And then we look at the Roman Catholic Church saying, well, look, Mary was sinless. Now, they arrive at that conclusion through logic, not through the scriptures. The scriptures do not tell us that Mary never sinned. In fact, at the very least, Mary was aware of her need for a savior. If we read here from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 and 47, the beginning of the Magnificat, and Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And also consider that Mary and Joseph probably missed out on a lot of the commanded feast days and the other requirements of the law, given that they had to flee to Egypt for a very long time until Herod died after Herod was doing his darndest to kill the Christ child. So no, I cannot say that anybody, even these three sterling examples of humanity, has ever been without sin, has ever been exempt from the sentence of death passed by the law. Nobody is going to attain to this righteousness. What St. Paul brings up when he says the righteousness that is based on the law, that has to be a hypothetical. Now, somebody might opine that, hey, your examples about uh, Elijah and Enoch and Mary uh, their non-obedience to a lot of these commandments here, that doesn't count because of their circumstances. I will tell you right now, the law does not care about your circumstances. The law cares about your obedience. You really do have to keep this in mind. The law is absolute in its demands. It has no breathing room for you regarding whether or not you obey a commandment in the law. Case closed there. There is no breathing room. There is no wiggle room. You're either going to die or you're not. If you have disobeyed the law in anything, you had to make a sacrifice, a guilt offering. And guess what? You're going to sin way too much for you to be able to really tally out how many times you could make an offering, make a sacrifice, and have that sin absolved. So, it's hypothetical, but we continue on here. St. Paul gives us a wonderful, wonderful word, but, in verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith says, 
Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. St. Paul here is primarily citing Deuteronomy chapter 30. Turning there real quick, Deuteronomy 30 verse 11 here. This commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. St. Paul is bringing up Deuteronomy chapter 30 saying it's that dynamic, but so much better. Who will ascend into heaven to bring Christ down? Well, he's here with you. Who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Well, Jesus Christ is not dead. He's near you. He's with you. So he says the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. The word of faith that we proclaim, that dynamic that was there with the law, because they had the law revealed to them, is here with Christ, too. He is in our hearts. He is in our ears when he's proclaimed through the mouths of the preachers, through the apostles, the prophets, through everybody who says, hold this word of faith. And therefore, St. Paul says here in verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Unlike the word that says, do this and live. Do all of these hundreds of commandments perfectly. And if you screw up, you'd better do all these sacrifices and you better keep that perfectly. And by the way, it's more than just actions and deeds. It's also the matter of your heart. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart. It's also having a perfect personality. It is also about an interior righteousness that you cannot attain. If you can do all that, go ahead. You'll live. Fine. You have eternal life. St. Paul says, look, that's a raw deal. You can't do that. The righteousness based on faith says Jesus accomplished it for you. This is why I love the old school way of doing Lutheran absolution. It's by the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are forgiven of our sins. We bring up his life because he was so perfectly obedient to the law. He is the only one in history to ever have done all of this, meaning that it is on his account that we are considered righteousness. So, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. No ifs, no ands, no buts. It is not a subjunctive here. The Greek word translated you will be saved is sothese, which is indicative, meaning this is just the case. Now, that said, we do have to ask, though, in verse 9, when it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what do we mean by all of that? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you are confessing that he's God. He is your God. 
He is the one that you trust in, worship, and hold to be the Holy Christ of God the Father. It is Kurion, or Lord, used um, several thousand times in the Septuagint to translate God's name. St. Paul is not mincing words here. If you confess the deity of Christ, and you believe God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now that word confess is not just saying it. It is also in agreement with it. When Jesus says, unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins, when he's interacting with the Pharisees, with the unbelieving Jews, he's basically saying, listen, you got to believe that I'm the head honcho. I am your God. I am the divine deity from the very beginning, the word ha-logos. Chances are, St. Paul had read the Gospel of John when he says the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, and then says whoever confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Hakorion, or God, Lord, he's basically giving us something of a callback to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He's telling us pretty plainly, yeah, we worship Jesus. He is our God. So while this verse is extremely good news for us, it is talking about how much easier it is to be saved because we have a Savior now that we can trust in to save us as opposed to relying on our own works for salvation or even the assurance of salvation. We do have to be careful that this does deny the Jehovah's Witnesses. This does deny the Mormons. It denies Islam. Anything or any religion, any sect, any denomination that is going to deny that Jesus is the one true God. If they're going to deny the Holy Trinity here, this verse doesn't apply to them. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter how offended they're going to get. Salvation is exclusively by trust in our Lord Jesus, who is Ha-Logos, second person of the Trinity. Now that said, he also says, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. He does not say believe in your head that God raised him from the dead. He does not use uh, epignosis. He does not say gnosko. He is not talking about an experience. He is not talking about an intellectual ascent merely. You are entrusting yourself from the heart to Christ that he was indeed raised for the dead. And if it is with your heart, not just your head, it is him being risen from the dead for you as your savior. So somebody out there who decides they're just going to say, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead, and then they go about their merry lives, not actually trusting in Christ for their salvation, say, yeah, I'm, of course I'm going to heaven. I'm a good person. This is how that works, right? I got the Ten Commandments here, and I love my neighbors, well, at least the good ones. And there we go. I'm going to heaven. That's not how this works. We confess that Jesus is our God. We worship him and we trust in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. And again, if we are trusting in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, that means we are trusting that he did so for us. This is trusting, trusting, trusting. I will never, ever, ever get tired of saying that. 
it is not just mere intellectual assent. This is why good old Doc Martin Luther said things like, well, Jesus is not the Christ until he is your Christ. He is not your savior until you've said, you are my savior. You are my Christ. You are the one who I trust to save me. Other than that, he's not going to matter to you. So in verse 10, he says, with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Does this mean that St. Paul says any baby who dies is going to go to hell because they cannot confess Jesus with their mouth? No. Is this St. Paul saying that mute people, people who have no tongue or people who cannot say things, are going to hell? No, not at all. And nor is this passage saying that if you just say a few words, and have intellectual assent to the contents of the gospel that you will be saved. Nobody is saved just because they said the sinner's prayer at a Billy Graham concert and then also thought some thoughts that agree with the historical fact of Christ's resurrection. Conversely, nobody has been damned just because they couldn't talk. I mean, somebody having their lips shut shouldn't be a sentence of damnation. There's never been a church council or anything where somebody says, whoever cannot speak, let him be anathema, and also all babies. This is about what does save you, not what damns you. That is very, very important about these two verses to bear in mind. Faith is living and active. Faith speaks and confesses. If somebody is unable to do so just because they are a baby, we also understand that baptism saves. It is through baptism that we are united to Christ and his merits are imputed unto us. And also, yes, somebody's faith in their heart, even if they cannot express it because, I don't know, they have severe Alzheimer's or advanced dementia and they trust in Jesus but they can't put two words together, well, they still have that faith in Christ which justifies, which saves. So, I know I shouldn't have to say these sorts of things, but occasionally you get those people who are really, really worried that maybe there is that sneaky-deaky exception clause in the gospel, like, ah, yes, Jesus died for your sins. Trust in him and be saved, except if your name is Barry, because we hate Barry. And also, uh, Richard. Forget Richard. Hate Richard. Like, the gospel doesn't have these weasel clauses that make it to where you cannot be saved. But that also means that anybody trying to add those weasel clauses needs to be firmly opposed. If anybody should tell you, oh yes, faith in Jesus, and by the way, also membership in the Roman Catholic Church, because outside of the church there is no salvation, duh, they're wrong. And any church that says that, again, needs to be extremely firmly opposed. Anybody that would say, oh yes, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. But what he really meant is... Nobody comes to the Father except by me, plus going through the Holy Eastern Orthodox Church, which is the one true apostolic faith, duh. 
That sort of speaking needs to be silenced. St. Paul does not permit it. If you confess with your mouth Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is a callback to Jesus Christ saying in Mark 16, 16, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Duh. But there's some tricky things that we got to keep in mind for us Protestants. This also means that if somebody says, ah, oh, yeah, believe in Jesus and you're going to be saved. But if you believe you should repent of your sins, you're going to hell. That person needs to be just as firmly opposed. Here's looking at you, independent fundamentalist Baptists, who think that somebody being a Calvinist means they're going to go to hell forever. See this notion that you have to have excruciatingly perfect faith in your head and in your heart or else you're damned. If you do that, you turn faith into a work. And if you turn faith into a work, you have negated the gospel. Because now you have to work extremely hard to have exactly the right perfect amount of faith and the right exact perfect kind of faith. You have to keep working and studying in this semi-gnostic fashion to maybe be saved. How is that any different from life under the law? Because I mean, who on earth is ever going to be saved? We are all sinners. Who is ever going to believe so perfectly? It's just not going to happen. So Protestants out there who are so dead set at hurling anathemas at every single thing they see, they're just as guilty as the Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox of sinning in this fashion, of adding requirements of works to faith. They are just as guilty. Now, I do understand we all value the truth here. And I also understand on the part of the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholics that you want to be with valid baptism. And yes, they want to guard against antinomianism. They're not doing it correctly. St. Paul guarded against antinomianism in chapters 6, 7, and 8. We don't have to add these things, these little requirements, these weasel clauses that make sure that if you step on the wrong crack in the sidewalk, you go to hell. And let's look at the last couple of verses here. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You look at that and you see, okay, he's, he's not saying all differences between Jews and Greeks are obliterated. Suddenly now Jews don't have distinctive Jewish names and Greeks don't have distinctive Greek names. Oh no, there's no such thing as a Greek named Timotheus Papadopoulos or something. He's not denying the actual real world material differences between people. He is saying we are all, regardless of who we are, saved the same way, calling on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for the Protestants out there who have been guilty in the past of trying to add their own weasel clauses to salvation, trying to damn everybody they see that isn't a specific, highly esteemed member of their church, I get that too. I understand. After all, if somebody does trust in their works more than they trust in Jesus, they're an idolater. If somebody trusts in their church membership more than they trust in Jesus, they are an idolater. They are an ecclesiolater. 
if somebody out there holds to some pet doctrine as the substance of their faith, here's looking at you reformed guys out there. There are so many of them who are guilty of acting as though election died for them on a cross. Well, look, that guy is an idolater. He's holding a doctrine as his God rather than the real God who went to the cross for him. Yes, all of these people really should be trusting in Jesus with a right understanding of the right Jesus. But that doesn't mean that if they hold imperfect faith or if they are unable to string two sentences together because they have dementia, that they are going to hell. This is a problem with so, so, so many groups. Every single Christian denomination has this problem of going overboard on this. But we are all saved the same way, with trusting faith in Jesus Christ and confessing, worshiping him as our God. Nobody is going to be saved because they were a really, really, really good member of the Methodist Church. And this should be seen as good news. This really is super duper awesome good news. You are saved by Jesus through saving faith in Jesus. And of course, there are all sorts of things that we have to answer and address. There are other parts of Holy Scripture that we do understand play a role in this. Yes, baptism saves. St. Peter says so multiple times. <laughs> yes, Jesus does tell us that Holy Communion plays a role in our salvation in John chapter 6. Absolutely. But the very core of everything here is that we are not under the law. For freedom, Christ has set you free. We should be rejoicing that it is not so difficult, not so hyper-exclusive, that there is zero wiggle room and therefore zero chance of you ever going to heaven. We praise the Lord that the assurance of our salvation boils down to, am I baptized? Do I trust in Jesus who died for my sins and rose again for my justification? And do I confess and worship him as my Lord and my God? Well then, yeah, I'm saved. It is that easy to see. It is that amazing. In everything that comes out of that, the people are so stinking worried about. Am I repenting of my sins? Am I doing good works? Am I holding to the proper faith and learning the right doctrine? All of that really does need to flow from the joy of being saved by Jesus. That he has already won that salvation for you. This is the very essence of the new obedience that we may obey God because we are saved, not in order to be saved. Now, I understand that I talked a whole lot about stuff that St. Paul is not bringing up. Because St. Paul gives us some very simple, plain, and precious truths here that people don't want to hear. In our flesh, we want to add things to this. We want to make it harder to be saved. We want to winnow everything out and get all the people we don't like out of the church. But that means that if I'm going to teach what the passage says, I'm going to have to bat away a lot of the false things that people say about it or try to sneak in through the back door. Now, thankfully, next week, we will be able to look at some things he's writing here 
about evangelism, about how faith happens. How do I have this precious treasure that that's literally all I need to understand whether or not I'm saved? We'll get into that next week, and trust me, it will be even more good news. But until then, our Lord bless you and keep you in the purity of his gospel and his word. Amen and amen.